0: listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Today is the last week of our four-part series in the Old Testament book of Haggai. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with us, then I would encourage you to find that. It's in the last 12 books of the Bible known as the Minor Prophets not because they were paid less or uh, had not earned a certain degree. No, they just didn't have a whole lot of written work. So they're grouped together as a a group of prophets that the Hebrews uh, knew as the 12 or the minor prophets because of the amount of writing was much smaller than some of the majors, which would have been Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. So we're studying in Haggai. And if you want background, I know I've Shared about this for the last couple of weeks and then couldn't find them. If you want some background on the book of Haggai as we finish out today, I still have several of these kind of give you a little bit about what's going on, give you a timeline to help you to sort of think through that. I'm going to put them right there because I know where they're at today, even though I did not the last two weeks. So there they are. If that's something that would be of interest to you, then I would encourage you to grab it as you go back and look at your notes and study back through what we have been looking at. Haggai. The prophet to the people of Judah, when they were allowed to return from captivity in Babylon, and they were in captivity in Babylon for seventy years, and God had prophesied through the prophet Isaiah uh, years and years and years prior that when Israel was in captivity, that they would be allowed to come back under a decree by a king named Cyrus, and just like God does, years and years and years and years later, when. His people were in fact in captivity. He was, uh, th- they were allowed to return because the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians, who ironically had a king by the name of. Cyrus, who made a decree that the people from the land of Palestine, as it would soon to become known, were going to be allowed to travel back and restore life, restore worship as a result of his decree. And so they did. They made uh, a couple of trips back. And this first trip back in about 538 BC, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, somewhere between 30 and 50,000 Jews went back to the land of Judea, specifically to Jerusalem, in order to rebuild the what class? The temple. They were going back to rebuild the temple. They got a good start. They came back, they restored the altar so that sacrifices could continue to be made or they could be reestablished there in Israel. And then once they got the altar rebuilt, they began to restore the foundation of the temple because it had been destroyed in 586 BC by said Babylonians. And so they were having to clear off the foundation and restore it so that it could be built back. At least as best they could. As they got the foundation completed and as they were beginning to start the project of rebuilding the temple, they received some opposition from neighboring peoples that were living in the land. Folks who wanted to help but were not qualified to help. And when the Israelites told them that they were not going to be allowed to help them rebuild this temple... They pushed back. They pushed back physically. They pushed back verbally. They pushed back legally, even stirring up trouble in the nation of Persia on behalf of these people trying to do what the king sent them back to do. And so the building project, once it got started, then got placed on hold for 16 years. For 16 years, God's temple sat dormant with a foundation ready to be built upon and people there to rebuild but no project being done and for those 16 years the people out of fear neglected God's building project and worked on their own houses restoring and refurbishing some pretty nice places according to some of the things that we've read and so God after 16 years of of just simple grace and long-suffering, sent two prophets, one by the name of Haggai, the other by the name of Zechariah. You can read their books uh, there, right beside one another in that order. God sent these prophets to stir the people back up to do what he sent them there in the first place to do. And that's what we've been looking at for the last few weeks. And now we come to the last message that's going to be received by the people of Israel, or at least by the the folks that are there, the remnant that is there to rebuild the temple. They've started rebuilding, and God's identified those uh, blessings that will come out out of respect for their obedience, though they were coming later than they were expecting, and God's encouraged them toward continual obedience. And then he gives the last message to one particular individual. In fact, this message comes... At the same time of the third, you'll notice in chapter one, if, if you've got your Bible, you'll notice in chapter one, it tells that in the second year of Darius, the king, who is the king of Persia now, in the sixth month on the first day, that's when the first message came. And then the second message came in the seventh month. Then one month later on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai. So Haggai is telling us when it's happened. So the sixth month, the first message, the seventh month came the second message. Then in chapter 2, verses 10. Uh, verse 10 it says, On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month came the third message. So there was the, the, the time of the of the of the third message. And then in verse number 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the twenty-fourth day of the month. So God gave He gave a reminder just to kind of catch you up. God told the people as they were building. He reminded them about the the length and severity of consequences for disobedience. And that's what he was wanting to remind them of. He had sent them there to do his work and they had disobeyed. For 16 years they had disobeyed. And God had listed some things that they had suffered as a result of disobedience. Their crops had not yielded like they had expected them to. Their business affairs had not uh, had not succeeded like they would have normally expected God to provide. Their clothes didn't last as long. They didn't keep them as warm. They would eat and still be hungry. And God says, you know why you're experiencing those things? It's because of disobedience. However, when you obey, then I will bless because I promise to bless you. But so that they would understand the the dynamics of consequences... He brought to their attention the fact that did you realize and have you understood that just because you began to obey did not mean that all of a sudden my blessings have caught up with you and you received everything like back blessing and all that and it just it just changed overnight did you recognize that it hasn't happened that way and the people I believe were responding well yeah we've noticed that we're being obedient but the blessings haven't returned as rapidly as we would expected and God says that's what what I need you to understand about the nature of consequences consequences for sin get that ball turning and and you know yes when you obey yes you're not you're you're no longer feeding into the consequences but you know they last sometimes longer than we expect them to but don't let that discourage you I see your obedience and I'm going to bless you And then he makes the fourth message on the same day. But this one, not to the people, but to a person. And we pick up in Haggai chapter 2, verse number 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms, I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, The son of Shealtiel declares the Lord and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, this message was for a person, but it was related to the people. But where God had been saying, now Haggai, I want you to speak to Zerubbabel, the governor. I want you to speak to Joshua the priest and the whole remnant of the people and say this. Now God is being very specific. This message is for the man known as Zerubbabel. Now, who is Zerubbabel? We've talked a lot about him. We've said his name. We've talked about how fun it is to say his name. I wonder if you've used that name in a sentence in the last month. It's fun to say. Who is this guy? Where did he come from, and why does he have the role that he has? Well, let's talk about him. Zerubbabel is mentioned in the books of Haggai, Zechariah, He's mentioned in Ezra, Nehemiah, and then he's also mentioned in Matthew and Luke, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. So Zerubbabel is mentioned in several books, but it's always within the context of him leading the people back to Jerusalem with the specific instructions to rebuild the temple so that worship could be reestablished in Israel. And so we, we hear about him in several books, but who exactly is he? Well, he's a young man who is of a princely lineage. He is the son of Shealtiel. We see that as he's mentioned in this book and in the others. And Shealtiel is the son of the last king. Well, next to the last king in Israel, that's by the name of King Jehoiachin. So, Zerubbabel is the grandson of the next to last king that Israel had in in Jerusalem. His name was Jehoiachin. So, Jehoiachin. You go, why is that so important? Well, because Jehoiachin's daddy's name was Jehoiakim. And you don't want to get the two mixed up because they're two different individuals. So, since I know you're probably confused let me kind of explain to you how things worked out. So Israel had, or the the nation of Israel split into two sections after the leadership of King Solomon. So Saul was the first king, but Saul wasn't God's choice. Who was God's choice to be king? David. So King David and his messianic type leadership so david is kind of a type of messiah and so everyone thinks about the the rule of king david and then his descendant to come so david was king and then king after david came Solomon and then when Solomon was reaching the end of his life there was some dispute in the nation over the next king and 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 the the kingdom was split and God said that that was going to happen because of Solomon's actions and because the actions of his son it was going to split in two but it didn't really split in half because the northern kingdoms made up 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel and the southern kingdoms made up two of the tribes of Israel. And so the northern kingdom began to carry on the name Israel and the southern kingdom carried on the name of Judah. So when you're reading your Old Testament, specifically in the books of Kings and Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, it's all of these books that follow after Solomon, you'll see where God speaks about Israel and he speaks about Judah. Well, that's not the same thing as the way we talk about the United States and we talk about America. That's not the same thing because they were in fact two different groupings of people. The nation of Israel made up of 10 tribes and And the nation of Judah made up of two tribes. The nation of Israel never had a positive king. From the time they split, they never had a king that followed after the ways of the Lord. All of the Israelite, all of the kings in the northern kingdoms, all followed after their own or pagan ways. But the nation of Judah had ups and downs they had kings that followed the lord and they had kings that didn't follow the lord and so zerubbabel is of this line of the kings of judah and he was born probably in babylon over that 70 year period and so he is a prince with no throne to sit on because there's no king in judah because who owns this region that they live in persia So Zerubbabel is, while a prince of the line of Judah, Zerubbabel is an an appointed governor by the ruler of the land who is the king of Persia, specifically under Cyrus and now Darius. So uh, Zerubbabel is in the land. He's of the line of kingship, but he's no king because they don't have true possession of their land. Let's talk about his great-grandfather, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was the son of Josiah, who was a great king in Judah. In fact, Josiah was a great king after his father, Manasseh, was a horrible king. In fact, Manasseh might have been one of the worst kings that Israel ever had and he ruled for a very long time. But after Manasseh's horrible rule came Josiah and Josiah was an agent of change. He brought the people back to the Lord. He reestablished the worship and the Passover in the land. Josiah was a, a beacon of that Davidic type kingship and then Josiah was killed in battle and his son Jehoiakim took over his rule and Jehoiakim was a chip off the old granddad Jehoiakim had no desire for the Lord let me tell you some of the things that Jehoiakim did Jehoiakim killed a prophet by the name of Uriah because he didn't like the word that the man was bringing to him Jehoiakim took the words of the prophet Jeremiah in a scroll that Jeremiah had written thus saith the Lord and Jehoiakim used a knife to cut the scriptures and toss them in the fire even as his advisors begged him not to do it and he would cut it and throw it in the fire refusing to hear the word of god and god said that's all right i got more scrolls and i got more ink and he had baruch Jeremiah's assistant rewrite the words but when he rewrote the words that the king had refused to listen God caused Baruch to write some warnings against Jehoiakim and 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 those were pretty stark warnings how that God says son that I'm I'm transliterating if you will I'm southernizing the Hebrew here son you don't do that and your consequences are a and so Jehoiakim, pretty bad dude. And then he dies and his son Jehoiachin becomes ruler and he's only ruler for three months. You know why? Because Nebuchadnezzar and all his band came as a result of God's judgment on Judah and sacked Judah and began the deportation of the people into Babylon he was 19 years old Jehoiachin was when he became king and he only ruled for three months taken into Babylon where he was in prison for about 37 years I believe if my reading is correct and then he was allowed some freedoms and so Jehoiachin had Shealtiel and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel of the line of David but basically a governor with no throne so that's who Zerubbabel is in fact God had made as as he had made a look at here son to granddad or to great granddad he had made one to granddad as well and only three months of kingship and you go God God said something about about his about his granddad Jehoiachin he was only king for three months what did he do I have no idea but he made a statement about this fella's granddad. And here's what it said. Jeremiah 20, 24 through 30. And here's what God said about Zerubbabel's granddad, Jehoiachin. He says, as I live, declares the Lord, though, and I know he's going to say Kaniah, and this is apparently Jehoiachin might have been like a royal part of a name, but he's also known as Kaniah. He says, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, even though he were like a signet ring on my hand. He said, Jehoiachin, I want you to understand. Even if you were like my, even if you represented my authority like a signet ring, yet would I tear you off and give you into the land of those who seek your life, into the hands of those whom you are afraid. Even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. That's exactly what God did to Jehoiachin, by the way. Verse 26. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. Which is exactly what happened to Jehoiachin, by the way. Verse 27. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Talking about Jehoiachin and his mother and his kids. Is this man, Kaniah, verse 28, a despised, broken pot of vessel who no one cares for? Man, what, what did he do is what I want to go. Listen to these. These are strong. Three months as king. And listen to the words that God's saying. Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? Oh, land, land, land. Are you listening to me, folks? I'm making a very, a very specific statement. Everybody in the land hear this? Land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the word of the Lord. Here it comes. Write this man down as childless a man who shall not succeed in his days for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Man, I mean, God, I'm so upset with you. I want everybody to hear it. You're gonna be a childless man and none of your kids and descendants will ever rule on the throne in Israel. Now, God made a pretty broad statement here. And so now Zerubbabel is in Jerusalem a child of Jehoiachin. And, and, And God's promise was true for Jehoiachin, But we see Zerubbabel here, and in just a few minutes, we've already read it, we're going to hear God say something that's going to sound like maybe God didn't mean what he said to Jehoiachin. God meant every word he said to his granddad Jehoiachin. He was upset with him, his consequences were severe. And now we've got Zerubbabel in the land, a prince of the Davidic line, in a ruling capacity, but under the authority of Cyrus, under the authority of Darius. So who is this Zerubbabel? What did God promise him? Look what he said. Verse number 20, he said, Speak to Zerubbabel and say, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdom of nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, and make you like a signet ring for I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts this is confusing is it not because I thought God said none of his descendants and now he's speaking to a descendant and he's making a promise what what is it that God promised well God promised Through the metaphor of shaking the heavens and the earth, it has this notion of earthquakes and natural disasters. And can God use those things? Absolutely. Will God use those things? Whenever he chooses to. But the metaphor is this idea that God is doing something and nobody can deny that it's him doing it it's not like God's doing something and I guess he's doing it through that king or that no no God is shaking the heavens and the earth he's saying I'm about to do something and it's going to be big and nobody's going to be able to deny it and here's what I'm going to do I'm going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms who who sits on the throne of kingdoms well I would say the Prince and the power of the air is what we learn in the New Testament that there is a, there is a mechanism that is, is not touched and, and physical, but it is spiritual. And I think what God is saying is, I'm going to overthrow the throne that is in charge of all of these kingdoms that are against my people. And since they're against my people, we know they're against. Me. Well, it sounds a whole lot like prophecies that are made through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. God talking about bringing those kingdoms under his control. And he says, I'm going to overthrow them. Bringing with this the idea that God is in control and everybody knows it. That's a promise that God made. And he's made it countless other times in the Old Testament. You know if you've had any experience reading the Old Testament, we see this all the time. God's making this same promise. And then he says, and on the day that I do this, Zerubbabel, I have chosen you to be my signet ring. Now, why, why should that perk up our ears him saying a signet ring that he'll become well don't you remember what I just read in Jeremiah when God said to his granddad George if, if you were like a signet ring on my finger I would pull it off and I would cast it into a land you go okay cool but what is a signet ring I'm glad you asked so a king or a ruler would have a ring on which is his seal and any time a law would be written, it would require ratification of the ruler. And they would take wax and they would heat it up and they would pour it on the, on the law or the parchment or whatever decree had been made. And then the king, while the wax was still ca- kind of tacky, the king would take his signet ring and he would press it into the wax so that when he pulled it out, what would show in the wax? The seal. We see this all over and, and we see it, we think about our mind runs to when Jesus was put in the tomb and they rolled the stone in front of the tomb and what did the governor do? He gave them this signet ring so that they could put a seal on the tomb and then put his seal, the, the Roman governor of the land, they put his seal on it. That way if anybody broke that seal, then they had to be doing so as an aggressive move against the authority of of Pilate which would have been against the authority of Rome so they sealed it and you think about well didn't Jesus get up yeah so didn't the seal have to be broken hey yeah well who broke it God did you think he's got a problem breaking Pilate's seal I don't think so but that's what a signet ring is so if a king wanted his authority to be to be uh, uh given to another on his behalf, he could take off his signet ring. And go, yeah, I'm not I'm not riding all that way down there to make that official. Here, you take my ring and I'm gonna give it to you, and you ride those 30 days to that place that that people were taking over. You put my seal on it, and that'll be good enough because I'm gonna give you my authority. That's what God is saying to Zerubbabel. On the day when I bring the nations to their knees, because I'm destroying the throne of all the kingdoms, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. Wow, wait, you told granddad he was a signet ring cast. Now you're making me? You're like, so did God not mean what he said to Jehoiachin? No, he meant that. But I think what he's meaning by your child, child, well, we know that Jehoiachin had children. I think what God was doing is he was cutting off Jehoiachin from the, from the position and the opportunity. He's like, no, and nobody associated with your actions because what had he done? He had followed the actions of his. Nobody, none of your children following you will ever serve me but Zerubbabel was not following the ways of his dad what had Zerubbabel done he gathered up a remnant of people hey let's go rebuild the temple and he had gone and he had started and, and had he quit yeah he quit 16 years he quit but then what did he do he repented he obeyed he was leading the people. And God says, son, that's what I'm talking about. Obedience. Now, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you a promise. And here's what I think God was saying here. You say, why Why?" why you think this is what God says? Did, didn't God say what he meant? Yep. Has God done what he said yet? No. Now, how do we know that he's not done this yet? Are there still kingdoms? that are contrary to god's word and to god's purpose of course they are in fact what kingdom of this world is not really against god's ways they're all against god's ways i we just, just let's be honest about it so has he done this yet no well is zerubbabel still alive no he's not so what did God mean by this? This is what I think he meant. I think God meant by his promise that you're experiencing trouble through the kingdoms of this world. They seem to be in control and they are causing havoc. Let's put Babylon at the top of that list. Did Babylon cause them some grief? Oh, you better believe. I mean, they caused them great grief. We, we think about Babylon coming in and taking the people captive, kind of like our authorities would do. Our authorities would come in and make sure, hey, sir, we're going to have to take you. Even the criminals, they get to the criminals, and what do they do? They make sure that they've got something. Or if it's cold, they put a blanket around them, and then they put them in the car, and what do the officers do? They they put their hand on their head. So, I mean, this joker just did something. He has broke half the laws of the county, and they're putting their hand on his head to make sure that he doesn't bump his head when he gets into the car. Now, a lot of times we think about that prisoners in our I, I know nobody nobody desires to live in prison but our government really does try to avoid as many unnecessary negatives as possible and I know that's silly to say but that's that's their goal that's what they're trying to do and a lot of times we think about the Babylonian captivity and other things like that that's how it worked out that ain't how it worked out I mean, like the, the Babylonians would come in, and while they knew that they had to take people captive, they looked for all the skilled folks, all the really smart folks, all the folks with things that were going to be beneficial to them and their nation, and they'd, they'd chain them up, but a lot of times they'd strip them. And by strip them, I mean take off their clothes so that they would have to travel naked. You know what that was doing? Humiliating them driving fear into their heart and they would put shackles on them and they'd make them walk the 900 miles plus. Well, what about the rest of the folks that were around? Well, they were sport. The Babylonians and the Persians and many of the Assyrians, they, many of these would just treat people like animals being hunted and it didn't matter their gender it didn't matter their age so they had suffered and I think what God is saying is is I look I see that they're still wreaking havoc on my people but Zerubbabel I need you to know something the temple's not built you guys are working you're you're kind of waiting on my blessing to to be felt again. I've made the promise and I know you're still hearing the noise over here and the noise over here and the noise over there and I get it, but I need you to understand. I'm in control. I'm in control. I'm in control. And one day, I'm about to bring all of that to everybody's vision they still had the greeks to deal with i mean the persians are just getting started you remember the dream that nebuchadnezzar had about the about the 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 statue and its different parts and if you follow the, the the way of thinking that a lot of us do is that had to do with the babylonian empire they've come they've wreaked havoc but now they're gone but what come after them the persians and they're going to wreak havoc and they're going to do what they're going to do. And then they're going to be gone. Why? Because the Greeks still got to come and the Greeks are going to do what they're going to do and wreak havoc. And, and then when they're gone, guess who comes after that? The Romans. And I think what God is saying is, is look, I'm in control and I'm about to, you got to watch when God says I'm about to, because when we say I'm about to, that means in the next few minutes, (laughs) God says, I'm about to, that could be centuries and centuries But I'm about to do something, and I'm going to show everybody. So, Zerubbabel, I need you to understand that I am ultimately in control, and I will ultimately be victorious. And I need you to understand, Zerubbabel, that the people of God will be blessed through their obedient uh, leader. Zerubbabel saw no major upheavals. Zerubbabel saw no major. Zerubbabel never even became king because Israel never had a king again. But I think what God is saying is, my obedient servant, I'm gonna make you like a signet. You know, I think that God was thinking about when he was making a statement to Israel's obedient Leader. I think he was thinking about the one who was to come. He said, How do you know that? I'm going to jump off script for a second. Because what book are we studying right now? We're studying Haggai. But who was the other prophet that was also speaking at this same time? Zechariah. Maybe we should have done a Haggai and Zechariah series together. But but what I'm going to do is I'm going to make mention of a few things. Because I think God's speaking to Zerubbabel. He's making a promise to the leader that I think's not going to be fulfilled until Jesus. Let me give you a little, some thoughts to think about. In Zechariah chapter 3 and verse number 8, and then in Zechariah chapter 6 and verse number 12, this is all on you version, and I'm happy to give you any of these so that you can read along. Zechariah 3, 8, 6, 12. Zechariah talks about the branch who is the branch it's a prophetic rendering of one who is to come a branch that is out of the stump that does differently than the tree that got cut down what was the tree that got cut down Israel what was the branch that came out Jesus messianic prophecy Isaiah chapter number 11 verse number 1 talks about a a bud a shoot that comes up out of that that had been destroyed that that new growth that comes so i got haggai making a promise to zerubbabel the obedient leader about something happening in the future and it didn't happen in zerubbabel's life and then i got zechariah over here talking about the branch who is the servant of God. And and in 6.12, it talks about the branch who's going to rebuild the temple. Wait a minute. These people are rebuilding the temple, right? Wrong perspective. Yeah, they're doing that right now, but the one who's going to rebuild it in the glory that is to come is this person known as the branch. Who is that? It's Jesus. You got Zechariah 9, verse number 9, talking about behold your king. Zechariah talking about a king, telling about the people to behold their king, riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Now, why does that sound so familiar? Matthew 21, 5, going into Jerusalem prior to the Passover, who do we find riding on the donkey that was tied up, that was needed? None other than Jesus. And what were they laying palm branches down saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the descendant of David. Zechariah 11 verse number 12 talks about the shepherd, which Zechariah is talking about himself, but he was a shepherd that was going to be rejected by the people. And and Zechariah says, "Well, okay, if you're going to reject me, then pay me what I deserve." You know how many silver coins were paid for the shepherd that was rejected? 30. 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah 11:12 for the shepherd that was rejected. You know how much a slave was worth in Exodus chapter 21, verse 32? 30 pieces of silver. You, you remember how much Judas earned for the people to reject their shepherd? it Zerubbabel? my obedient leader, I'm making a promise that he never experienced. Why? Because you're the representative of the one who's going to receive it. Zechariah 14.10 says the same thing that is said in John 19.37 when it refers to looking on the one they had pierced he's gonna come and israel's gonna see him and they're gonna mourn because they're the ones who pierced him and jesus in john 19 verse 37 says as it is written you will look on him whom you have pierced Because John 19, 34 says they took a spear and drove it in his side and outflowed blood and water. Zechariah 13, verse number seven. Matthew 26, verse number 31. Zechariah refers to the shepherd that is struck and the sheep will scatter. Scatter. Matthew 26 31 Jesus says as it is written strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter Zechariah 14 4 to 5 talks about this one whom they'll look upon that is pierced and if you've ever wondered where where in the bible does it say that he's going to return and he's going to step on the mount of olives and it will split in two halves where, where, where is that that revelation No. Nope. Zechariah, Zechariah 14 4 to 5 says he will come his foot will touch the mount of olives it will split in half you'll find something very similar sounding when in revelation 19 11 through 16 that one who comes on a white horse will come and set himself down and you remember acts uh, chapter 1 verse number 11 as jesus ascends up And they're standing there looking and the two folks in white come by and they go, what are you looking up there for? That same Jesus in like manner is going to return just like he left. Oh, okay. Guess where they were standing when he left? The Mount of Olives. So I'm not just deciding that since this didn't happen for Zerubbabel, that it must be Jesus because... The other prophet is talking a whole lot about the one who is going to be the recipient of the promises of God. And I'm thinking that God has said to Zerubbabel, like he had said to Solomon, like he had said to David, like he has said to Jacob, like he has said to Abraham, a promise. That they didn't get to experience themselves, but that ultimately will be fulfilled in the one who will. Why would God say these things to Zerubbabel? Here's why I think he would say these things. Because you folks are going to experience some more difficulty. But I want you to know... Regardless of your obedience or disobedience, regardless of that, I'm still in control and I'm going to do something and I'm going to have an obedient servant who is going to be my signet ring. He's going to have my authority. Now, I told you earlier that Zerubbabel is mentioned also in the New Testament. He's mentioned in Luke chapter number three, he's mentioned in Matthew Chapter number one, what do you think's happening in those two chapters that would involve Zerubbabel? The lineage and Matthew from David down through Joseph. And guess who's smack dab in the middle of that? Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. And then you go over to Luke and and the lineage from Adam through David all the way down to Mary. And who do you think is smack dab in the middle of that? Zerubbabel. God said, Jehoiachin, none of the folks who follow after you will ever sit on the throne because I'm cutting you off. Zerubbabel, son, look, I'm pleased with your obedience and I'm gonna bless y'all as a result of your obedience. But let me tell you something when I begin to shake and bring things in control, I'm going to make one my authority whose obedience far outshines yours. In fact, one who became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And so God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. So that on that day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Why? Because every nation will submit. Amen? Pretty good promise, I think. Precious promise, I believe. And Jesus came, Matthew 28, 18, just before his ascension. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I've got the authority. So here's what you, you to do. You go and make disciples of all the nations, and I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I want you to teach them everything I've commanded you. And listen to me, I'm with you, with all authority. He also said in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have tribulation because I've not overthrown those kingdoms. Oh, they're under my control, but I've not overthrown them. You're going to have tribulation, but don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. So the promise made to Zerubbabel that will be fulfilled in Jesus is a promise that we too can take comfort in. Knowing this, it doesn't matter what's going on around us. It doesn't matter who gets elected or who doesn't get elected. It doesn't matter what gets voted in or voted out. It doesn't matter what anybody does or says, what any leader rises up or gets torn down. It doesn't matter the rumors of anything that happens. Why? Because God's in control. And in his time, he will bring all the noise and that's all it is, is noise. He'll bring it to an end. And who will be seated on that throne? None other than the crucified one who died in your place and for your sin and invites you to come to him by faith alone, in his work alone, so that you might be forgiven of your sin. Set free from the destiny that is yours because of sin. And give a new life, a new purpose, a new hope. What do we see in the book of Haggai? Timeless principles for God's people. Here they are. And this is just a, a recap of all that we've learned. Number one, remember your priorities. God's work first, everything else second. Number two, retain the right perspective. I know how it looks to you, but it ain't about how it looks to you. It's about what I'm doing and what I say and what I know. Number three, remain obedient. Don't pursue disobedience, stay in it. And lastly, rest assured, I'm in control. Christ has the authority and if by faith you know him he is your king who is coming and when he does all will be made right you just keep pressing on you just keep following him you just keep trusting me by faith and telling everybody you can about what's been done for them amen so we'll pray. Stephen, do you have a group of folks with heads bowed and eyes closed? Nobody's looking around. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've said. We thank you for what you've promised we thank you for the one who's going to guarantee those promises are fulfilled just as you said god we confess that uh there are things going on around us that cause us fear that causes confusion cause us to wonder god give us courage to look at those things with confidence knowing that you're in control knowing that no throne no kingdom nobody can stand against your purpose And since they can't stand against your purpose, they cannot ultimately stand against your purpose through us. Yes, of course, we might face difficulty and tribulation and trials, the likes of which we've never experienced before. In fact, it may even cost us our physical life to pursue obedience to you and your word. But God, we also confess because Jesus is alive, having defeated death, even death cannot stop your purpose for us because of resurrection. We confess that and we thank you. God, I pray for those that may be here that have never trusted Christ as Savior. May they hear only that you love them, that you gave Jesus, God the Son, so that he might in our place as our substitute die as a perfect sacrificial lamb so that we might experience forgiveness so that we might be set free so that we might be made right with you and brought into your family and may they hear that it can only be received by faith believing God I pray that you will draw men and women to yourself even as we sit with head bowed with eyes closed You've never trusted Jesus. It's as simple as, God, I I know I'm a sinner and I know I deserve all of your wrath. But I believe that Jesus has made forgiveness possible. And I want that. I want what he's done for me. I want you to forgive me and I want you to save me. I want to be yours. I want you to be mine. I want my life to be lived for you. It's just a matter of you receiving him right where you are. We ask that you'll speak to our hearts, encourage us, move us for